introduction to Zazen, introduction to meditation in the Zen style. And we're doing it in, a, in something of an unorthodox way where we're, uh, we're doing it gradually. Um, my, uh, my teacher likes to talk about learning Zazen as being thrown into the deep end of the pool. Um, but we're going we're gonna to take it slow, or we have been for the last several weeks. I hope that's been a fruitful approach so far. Um, if, it's your, if it's your first time or your first session out of these sessions, then no worry. Uh, what we do tonight can stand alone. And I wanted to take a few minutes at the beginning to, um, yeah, see how the practice has been going. Uh, anyone who's, who's been sort of following along, um, anything, you, anything you're noticing in your practice, anything that came up for you that was uh, either novel or totally normal, um, anything at all. Just a few minutes to see where we are before we dive into some new material. Wonderful, wonderful. Great, good to hear. And, and if the reports had been, uh, I don't get any of this or that's really not helping, that would have been good information too. But uh, I really appreciate your uh, hearing, hearing just a little bit about what, what's been happening these few weeks, so thank you. Um, I feel a little lost. I realized I didn't bring my clock. I wonder if anyone has a wristwatch with a face, you know, like the old, old kind, that they'd be willing to... I know, we all have phones now, we don't do that. It's amazing. I have mine, I'll just keep pushing it so I know what time it is. Okay. So I actually want to start a little slow tonight, um, noticing a, li a little tender with, uh, I mean, well, it's Valentine's Day. Um, it's also my brother's birthday. Happy birthday, Luke. And depending on your perspective, that is either really important or not important at all. Um, anyway, I want to dedicate the goodness of what we do tonight to my brother. Um, and also to acknowledge, um, you know, a day, a day like this, a day full of, a day dedicated to heart. And what a, like, what a tender and vulnerable time this is. You know, I was looking at the news a little bit earlier today. and I won't name anything in particular. I think you can fill in the blanks, but there's, um, there's just so much happening. So I, I want a, a moment to acknowledge that. And then a third thing along the lines of the heart. I mentioned my teacher, and uh, one time I asked her, what's, what's, the, what's the heart, what's the kernel of your teaching? Like, what's, the, what's really the heart of the matter? I think that's something that Zen students do to Zen teachers every now and again. And um, she paused for a moment in the way that she likes to do, and then she, I mean, we're like this far apart, you know? She gets this big smile on her face, and she says, Joy, presence, int intimacy, and encouragement. And cur, to give heart, to encourage. Anyway, so I'm going to say thank you to my teacher as we start. So just a quick review, things we've covered over these last couple of, last couple of weeks. This gradually gradual entry into the practice of zazen, into shikantaza. What we're trying to do here is to, to develop a facility with the fullness of our experience, such that everything that arises in our experience gets to be included, nothing left out. And in this way, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about zazen as this vast, all-inclusive practice. It involves both what is arising and how we're relating to it. Part of why I say these sessions can stand alone, if you get this one thing and practice it, that, you know, everything else is just extra. What's happening now? How am I relating to it? And learning to do that in a skillful way. In the first session, we talked a bit about posture, the importance of the alert spine, so the settled seat, uh, encouraged a daily practice, if that's available for you. And then we centered ourselves on the breathing. 
and worked on these two primary skills having to do with the attention. One is directing the attention to the breathing, directing to an object, and then the second skill of sustaining. Then in the second day, we widened the aperture a bit uh, to include the body as a whole. Uh, we did one of my favorite exercises, with, which is that hand exercise, sensing the sensations of the hand and then letting the attention roam around. Um, it's just deeply nourishing, of profound benefit and mindfulness of the body, um, conducive of wisdom, conducive of relaxation. And one of its properties is that it unifies, right here and now, your mind and your body. To pay attention to this body, you're actually attentive to what's happening here. All of our senses are operating here and now. You can't taste a memory. You can have a memory of a flavor or something, but you can't, if you're tasting something, you're actually here. Does that make sense? And you can't taste the chocolate you're going to have a week from now, you know? It has to happen now. If you're with the senses, then you're here. Skills we introduced related to the body were sensing pleasant and unpleasant. Pleasant and unpleasant, these really primary drivers, so persuasive. And then learning to remain balanced and upright with them. There's a way that our, our training and the posture on the first night set us up for this. Like if, we're, if we're fully here in our body with our dignified posture, our alert spine, and our balanced body, then pleasure and pain don't push us around quite so much. We get to choose. And every time we're sensitive, but not persuaded, we're growing toward freedom. This works with sensation, it works with our emotions. Hi, come on in. All conducive to simplicity, a simple relationship with experience. So that was it in a nutshell. In the spirit of simplicity, I think I'd like to start us with a meditation this morning or this evening. So um, we're going to find our posture, settle for a few minutes into our breathing, and then I'll introduce a few approaches that we're going to develop over the course of the night. All related to the theme, which is mindfulness of thinking. Kind of radical that we can be mindful of thinking. So, um, yeah, let's find your way into a posture. I think that you can sustain more or less comfortably for about 15 minutes. Um, yeah, if, you, if uh, gosh, if there are any cushions left, feel free. There's some more in the, yeah, more in the back. Uh, you may prop one under a knee if you've got a floating knee or... You may have noticed that I sit down in a kneeling posture. That can also be good if the cross-legged postures aren't so good on your legs. So taking the time to find your seat. Whenever I'm establishing a meditation posture, I really take some time to sense into the, the bones of the seat. Spend so much time with attention in the head. Instead, bringing the attention down, 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 down. Sensing the seat, sensing the legs.
And from there, letting the spine grow long and tall. Sort of feeling your way into balance. Left and right, front to back. The ears in line with the shoulders. Nose in line with the navel. Since we're just starting, maybe roll the shoulders back a little. Eyes can be gently open. suggest taking a few deep breaths with the whole torso. And then you may want to just rock the body just slightly to settle all the more into an upright, balanced position. And for now, letting the attention rest completely on the breathing. I'll be quiet for these next couple of minutes. Having settled here, we're going to do something, and that is, we're going to give ourselves permission to think. Completely fine to think. To have a thought come up. And when a thought comes up, to clearly notice, let's see how much of the process you can see. From that first moment a thought appears, any involvement with it, 
and then its disappearance. Just to look directly at what's happening. For now, the content is not so important. But the process of a thought's arising, involvement, and fading away. If there's no thought or the mind inclines to confusion, stay with the breathing. And then when you're ready, open to the arising of another thought. You may notice that a thought does not arise fully formed. There may be a whisper of a word or a partial image. Maybe you hear the inner voice. What's the mood or the attitude of the inner voice? Or maybe you just feel the movement of energy before a thought is born. Now for the next few minutes, let's return to our home of the breathing. And then only if a thought is very compelling, then we can turn our attention to it, watching the process. If a thought is not compelling, it can just stay in the background while we're with the breathing.
And to bring this exercise to a close, taking a few deep breaths to sense your way fully into the body. Letting go of any tension that's made its way. so much to talk about. Mindfulness of thinking. Um, time now, yeah, if you want to adjust your posture, stretch your legs, feel free to do that, yeah. Or if you're now discovering that you want another cushion, feel free. Please take care of your bodies while you're here. So while we're moving around a little bit, any, um, any reports about how that exercise was for you? Just this, this first go, observing thought as a process or giving yourself permission to think or anything, anything else that came up. Yes. Thinking can result in compelling thoughts. Is that what you said? No, I said today can result in compelling thoughts, right? Today. Today can, yes. <laughs> yeah, totally. So it's interesting to wrestle with that in that context. Sure. Yeah, the... Um, yeah, I hope, the, I hope the wrestling subsides soon enough and the relationship can be simple. Yes. It was very striking to me how you were speaking the whole time, even when you said you can give yourself permission to think about my thoughts. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> <laughs> give yourself permission to think, and they all just. Yes. Uh huh. Amazing. What is what is that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, too bright. Don't look at me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great. I'm, I'm taking the laughter as like indication that other people were experiencing something like that. I'm going to press a button on my phone because it is also my pancreas and it wants to tell me something about my blood sugar. So just a sec. All right. Yeah, maybe one more and then we'll do the next thing. Aha. Yeah, I mean, I can just do like a summer thing. The only way I could get myself to think was like kind of being lost in thought. And then once I caught myself being lost in thought, then it would kind of dissipate a little bit. Cool, right? Yeah, yeah. So letting yourself be lost in thought was the way that you could think. Yeah. Now, it's, it's kind of amazing how that tunes us in to the, whatever the actual tool is that, we're, that we can choose to think or choose not to energize thinking so much and how counterintuitive that it's giving ourselves permission. I'm surprised. Um, yeah, I, I want to start the um, sort of instruction part of this with one statement and that is there's no way in the world we will cover this whole topic tonight. Mindfulness of thinking is so rich, so rich. So I'm going to point to some things. Um, I think we all know very well that uh, it's easy to get the impression that we should not be thinking during meditation. Pretty standard, right? Yeah. Um, 
And of course, there, there are times when thinking will calm or quiet. Uh, and actually, forms of meditation in which thinking actually isn't so appropriate. Um, but for the, the style of meditation that we're developing, this method that we're developing, that's not the ask. Um, but I, I want to I acknowledge with my palms together, the thinking gets a bad rap in meditation circles. Um, but it's, it's important as we develop this method that we respect every part of ourselves, including our intellectual life. Um, when, I, when I connect with how important thinking is, I think of Shakespeare. I think of Neruda as one of my favorite poets. Um, every movie you've ever seen. Uh, every Dharma talk you've ever heard. These are all thoughts. The way you learn meditation. All through thoughts or observation. Um, so we can't, you know, uh, I, I, I put this caveat at the beginning because I don't want us at all to get the idea that thinking is a no-no. Thinking is this important part of our life. And I think we, we know all too well that thinking can run away with us. Um, I think I told this story last year that uh, when I was learning how to water ski when I was a kid, um, yeah, I grew, up in, I grew up in Texas where that was a, that was a thing that people did. Um, anyway, so I've got, my, I've got my big wide skis and you kind of sit back in the water and you hold the rope, right? And then you wait for the boat to go. And then when, when it was time for the boat to go, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm like finally up after all of these tries, right? I'm finally standing up and then pretty soon I lose my balance, I fall down, but I don't let go. And I get, I get pulled under the water and just dragged. And I'm like, oh, I'm holding on. I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to let go until obviously I have to. That's totally our thinking. So it's like holding on to this thing. We're like under the water. It really hurts. It's running away with us. And we don't know how to let go. We don't know how to let go. So yeah, thinking, thinking can take us over, of course. Compulsive and obsessive thinking, anyone do that from time to time? Um, yeah. Maybe the tenderness arising in me today has to do with how close the heart and thinking are. Yeah, I'm gonna have to sit on that one to really know what that's about. Well, the, practice, the practice of mindfulness of thinking, one of the ways that I want to characterize what we're up to is we're developing a wise relationship to our thoughts. Knowing that they're important. Knowing that we're not trying to push them away and get rid of them. We're trying to include everything. How do we live wisely with our thinking? That's the big question. Uh, the abbess of Green Gulch, Fu Schrader, I think characterizes this attitude by saying that her aim in practice is to have an affectionate relationship with her own mind. And then uh, Gil, one of my other teachers, he says that he and his mind are good friends. <laughs> uh, and then someone quoting Suzuki Roshi along these same lines, whose encouragement was, don't be disturbed by your mind. Don't be bothered by your mind. Pretty easy to say. So we have these practices. Each of these sessions so far, we've incorporated a couple of key skills. And with mindfulness of thinking, the two that I want to put forward for tonight are, one, non-identification. How to not identify with our thinking. And the second is investigation. Non-identification investigation. And we'll sort of unpack these as we go. This from Suzuki Roshi, another indication of the attitude with which we'll do the practice. He says this. Oh, uh, Suzuki Roshi founded this temple. He says, when you practice Zazen, 
don't try to stop your thinking. Let it stop by itself. If something comes into your mind, let it come in and let it go out. It will not stay long. When you try to stop your thinking, it means you're bothered by it. Do not be bothered by anything. It appears as if something comes from outside your mind, but actually, it's only waves of your own mind. And if you're not bothered by the waves, gradually they will become calmer and calmer. It's one of these, uh, it's a passage from a book we recommend to folks who come in for the first time, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And then I find, I'll read it like, I'll read passages from it every year, and I'll be like, wow, I never saw this before. So um, I won't try to get to the bottom of that passage. But with this attitude as a basis, that, that what's in our minds is just waves in our minds. Our thinking is just waves in our minds. And if we don't stir them up, we don't get involved in them, eventually by themselves, just calms down, calms down. Gentle surface of the water. And we do this first by grounding in our breathing, as we've done before, letting our thoughts stay in the background. It's important for this practice of mindfulness of thinking that our home base, our home is in the knowing. Our home is in attention. Our home is in awareness, it's not in thinking. So our home is in the knowing, it's not in the thinking. And when our home is in the attention, the thoughts can come. We can be either not involved with them or minimally involved with them and they can pass right by. And I was thinking about this and uh, Muni, the bus, came to mind. Say you're on the Muni, right? And uh, Imagine all of the conversations that are happening around you that you don't have to get involved in. What a relief. You've been talking all day, having these important conversations, right? You get on the Muni and it's just like, what if you counted? Everyone on the Muni had like 50 thoughts while you're beside them. How many people are there and multiply? All these thoughts you just don't have to get involved in. They can go right by. You don't have to, you don't have to answer. And so it can be, like, what a relief. And then when a thought becomes compelling enough, like mm, your stop coming up, then you can turn your attention to the thought and come to know it. So, let's talk about investigation. Investigating with curiosity. When we were doing the guided meditation at the beginning and we talked about seeing thought as a process, seeing it in its particulars, we're getting into the beginnings of investigation there. First, we have to see that it's there, right? We have to see, we have to, we have to see this actual uh, phenomenon in the present moment. And then curiosity and investigation starts to maybe tease it apart a little bit. Am I thinking in image? Am I thinking in words? What, what's the actual like experience of this thought? And it, it's not solid. It's actually pretty hard to grab, and then when you look at it, it runs away. So in just the same way as last time, we worked with teasing apart our emotions, you know, seeing how they were composite, we can do just the same thing with our thinking. We totally have the capacity to be absorbed in narrative, completely. And we have the capacity to lean toward knowing instead, and look at these component parts of thoughts. I think a good metaphor for this is the way that, um, is cinema, film, movies. We can totally be in the narrative of the movie, following along with the plot, or you can take a step and a half back and sort of be deconstructing what's going on. Costumes, directing, cinematography, the shots and all that. You can be watching the movie as a process, or you can be engrossed in the narrative. Same thing can happen with our thinking. And the investigation piece is to start to see what's here. What are the component parts? And one of the, one of the fruits of this is the other skill, 
one of the fruits of investigation is this other skill of non-identification. If we're not glued to the narrative of our thinking, if we're not automatically buying that we are the protagonist in the story of our mind, then we get, we get that much lean into non-identification. No one put this thought here. Like, it's not mine. I didn't make it. It came together based on these conditions and intentions. How many of you had, like, a thought you would be embarrassed by today? Did you put that there? <laughs> I didn't put that there. Sometimes I say that to myself as a practice. When, when, a, uh, when I can see myself really getting carried away, say I'm having some sort of conflict and I'm just like, I'm really like leaning into it and I feel the energy building. Like, wait, 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 wait. I didn't put that thought there. Take a breath, you know? And then a fully formed thought. In the mind, it's, it's a representation of just a few things. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, and intellectual content. It's like attitude, energy, words. Just these things. You can start teasing a thought apart in, under those conditions, and the non-identification piece kind of happens on its own. So investigation, non-identification. I want to circle back and kind of uh, uh, emphasize this, this bit of appreciation for our thoughts. I found some more Suzuki Roshi from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He has this chapter called Mind Weeds. And he says, we say pulling out the weeds, we give nourishment to the plant. We pull the weeds and we bury them near the plant to give it nourishment. So even though you have some difficulty in your practice, even though you have some waves while you're sitting, those waves themselves will help you. So you should not be bothered by your mind. You should rather be grateful for the weeds because eventually they will enrich your practice. Hmm. That's a whole other Dharma talk, I think. Yeah. The way that our that our, our experience, whether we like whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether we deem it a mistake or a success, exactly our experience, however it is, is our own path of practice. And that includes everything in our life, including our thinking and our emotions. Now Related to all this, related to identification, related or non-identification, related to investigation and appreciation for our thinking is the fact that often, like, often our thoughts are not random. Sometimes they are. But sometimes they point to something that's deep and valuable in us. Maybe there's a repetitive thought that comes up in Zazen because actually underneath it, there's an emotion that needs attention. Or a repetitive thought comes up and suddenly you have insight or clarity about uh, a choice you need to make. I remember, I remember being on one of my first week-long meditation retreats and I, I went in um, not knowing quite how torn I was about a big decision I needed to make in my life. I think unpacking that would take a little too long. It would be a really compelling story. So, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forego telling that story. What you need to know, though, first couple days didn't bother me at all. A few days in, it was like, oh, this is the issue of the retreat. It came up. It was like I could feel this whole like whirlwind of emotions. My stories are all there. And my plan for my life, you know, that one? That story that has everything on the line, that, that was the one. And I sort of, I, I didn't solve it, I didn't do anything with it. I was there with my stories and my feelings, you know, doing something of the practice that we're talking about tonight. And then at a certain point there was like, 
a crack. And everything opened up and I, I cried and I cried and I cried and I knew exactly what I needed to do. It's pretty amazing. But the thinking was pointing to that bigger thing. It was pointing to that like big decision I needed to make and the potential for it to be resolved. You know, it had just been a story, but there was something bigger underneath that needed care and practice and attention. Okay, there's one more thing I want to mention by way of approach. You know, it could be that there's an emotion underneath our thinking and we can apply mindfulness of emotion to it. Another thing that could be fueling our thinking is a strong sensation in the body that we may not be aware of so much. Um, I remember having, having sort of compulsive, repetitive thinking going on, sitting down to meditate, and a few minutes in, realizing that there's a really, really big contraction, like right between my ears. And that was fueling my thinking. And then when I relaxed that contraction, the thinking slowed down. The compulsive thinking slowed down. So the encouragement there is, as you're teasing apart a thought, you're looking at its component parts, also look what it's connected to. Is it connected to an emotion? Is it connected to a, a sensation? Is it connected somehow to the breathing? Um, yeah, just by, by, by way of approach. So various tactics to tease thoughts apart. Again, all with this very simple underlying principle, which is to be present for experience and your relationship to it. I have some more things to say, but I have the sense of like that, that feels enough for the moment. So I'm gonna say, let's stand up and take a stretch break. Wiggle around. And then we'll see what kind of, what kind of questions we have. Sure, big question, right? If we don't identify with our thinking, what do we identify with? Yeah, the, I guess one of the principles in support of non-identification is that it develops, it develops gradually over time. And the practices of being with the breathing and being with the body slowly on some level begin to show us how our body, to, in whatever measure, is not our own. In some way, of course, our body is our own. <laughs> and, the, and we also don't have complete control over it. There's a way that we are subject to our body, that we can't identify completely with the body. And that sort of sinks in gradually. And the same thing starts to happen with our thinking life, our intellectual life. We still have, a, we still have an influence and we can generate, we can generate intellectual content and like, it's very useful. Um, we can still have a basis and a relationship with it. But if you, look, if you look for something that you call me and you find something, that's a very fruitful place to investigate. And this is, and this is, the, this is the kicker of the whole thing. In working with non-identification, identification will not release until it's ready. It needs like, the gradual process is such that like, we let go of a little bit of identification and then we sort of lean on something. Something else finds, we find a home. And then that loosens and then again and again and again. And then gradually the identification as a whole sort of falls out. Yeah, and what do we identify with? Eventually the, um, this is sort of the far end of the look, is that um, a recognition that selfing, so like the activity of fabricating a self, is a category. We categorize experiences as self and others. And eventually that category loses some of its meaning. It doesn't mean that we disappear. 
I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that at all. I'm still a healthy, integrated human being, you know. But different categories come to the fore. That uh, and then the category of self and other fades out. I don't know if I really addressed your question. I kind of got going. <laughs> All right. All right. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then I'll come back here in the corner. Um, classically, there's a set, there's a set, of, a set of categories. Um, I'm gonna, maybe I'll switch to frames of reference for experience. Uh, parsing experience in terms of uh, stress, not stress, conditions that give rise to stress, conditions that undermine it. So having those four categories, ma those map loosely on the Four Noble Truths. And having that as kind of a reference point as for basic parsing of experience, totally different things start opening up. And you can practice with it. Like pick it up for 10 minutes and be like, oh, these 10 minutes, I'm going to parse my experience in terms of the Four Noble Truths, just to see how different that is. In some ways, we're doing it with these different ways of meditating. We're taking the body as the basis, our main category for experience, and attending to the body. And we're taking the breathing and having that as like our home base for experience, rather than me, 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 me. <laughs> Instead, it's breathing. Breathing, breathing, and the like. Ah, let me go here and then I'll come to the back. Yes? Something you touched on before the last question was... L let me paraphrase to make sure I'm answering the question you're asking. Um, what, I'm, what, what I'm hearing as primary is that there is emotion that is the primary compelling part of experience uh, uh, with the sense that that's taking you out of contact with mindfulness or awareness. And then the, the approach, it, yeah, is that, is that at the, the heart of things? And then this is in relationship to thinking because thinking connects to our emotional life, maybe fueled by it underneath. Um, it's very, 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 very common that this is the case. Like, Gil will sometimes do this thing where he'll be like, the, if our being is, is the whole tree, and you know, we have, we're, if we're hanging out at this level of experience of maybe we're having an interesting thought or a superficial emotion or something, and then if we follow it further back to the, closer to its source, something more fundamental is down here, right? And it, sound, it sounds like there's, a, there's something that's like a more fundamental emotional life that's going on for you that's maybe fueling some of these other things, like could be distraction, could be thinking, could be a whole, whole lot of creativity, <laughs> you know, could be beauty in your life, but there's something underneath, right? And it's, um, yeah, some, something that I could hope to, hope to add to the mix is that... Um, we don't, we don't know its value. It could, have, it could have value that we don't know. Even, even if what we know about it is unpleasant. You know, uh, I, was, I recently spent some time with uh, Saito Ujagara, who's a, who's a deeply practiced teacher. And he, um, he was on this thing about, uh, this thing about being able to be with, at the same time, tragedy and humor. How dare we, you know? But just to know that these are in close relationship. So we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't know. So um, holding, it with, holding it with tender hands and holding your heart with tender hands. And, and I, think, I think if you find, even if you don't go straight at whatever the emotion is, if you, if you hold your whole broad practice with tenderness, it, sort of, it, it softens. It softens everything else. That would be my first thought. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, so this is sort of like 
Yeah, yeah, thank you for the question. I, it brings up something valuable that I didn't name, so I'm, I'm really glad that you did this. Uh, and that is, when I'm talking about total non-identification, I'm talking about the space of meditation, like developing that practice of non-identification. Even if the truest story of who you are and what you represent comes up in meditation, during that half hour, you don't have to pick it up. You get to be totally free of engaging your story, if you want, and that's if that's available, right? In our social life, can you imagine the chaos if we just identified with nothing all the time? That would be wild. It would be really wild. But what you're, what you're pointing to is this, the skill that this develops, the capacity that this develops, where we get to actually, I mean, with, with some real agency, choose some measure of the thoughts that we're going to pick up and engage, and the ones we're going to value. And we can live a reflective life, because we, 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 get, we get some kind of choice in selecting our thoughts and then developing them. There's this... Um, it's a really old teaching. One of these stories of like, or a handful, a handful in the, the Pali canon of stories where the, the Buddha goes on to get enlightened, but it's like his practice before enlightenment story. I love these. I find it encouraging. Um, and one of them, his exercise is he sorts his thoughts into this is a thought that's based in greed, hatred, and delusion, and ouch, oh boy, ouch. And this is a thought that's not based in greed, hate, and delusion. Oh, I know. And I could think these without harm. I could think them except that excessive thinking tires out the body. <laughs> uh, but he got to choose through being aware of thinking. Yeah, I think that points to something similar there. Thanks for bringing that in. I and then on the far, far end, and then we'll, we'll go to your, your comment. On the far, far end, just to put it in there as a possibility, somehow, somehow the Buddha, for however long, was able to operate in the world in a very powerful and clear way and not be identified with anything. I don't totally get it. But I'm holding it as a possibility. What is it? What is that? Yeah. Others tried to identify him with stuff. But uh, it was maddening for the people that questioned him. They were like, um, you're this. He was like, no, not that. You're, okay, you're the opposite. No, I'm not the opposite either. Okay, you're this other thing. No, 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 I'm not that either. What are you? I'm awake. He didn't, um, he was fully there. But with, with whatever experience, he didn't participate in the, in the process of selfing. It just wasn't necessary for him anymore. The Buddha was pretty far along the path. <laughs> yes? Yeah, 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 that, that's a great question. Because it involves a lot of mental activity, right? I think some of that has to do with... Um, getting introduced to the skills, you know? It's kind of like learning the scales. You gotta do it over and over and over and over and over and over. And then soon enough, you're like, you're playing with, you're playing with, um, yeah, it just happens naturally. Maybe, maybe for those of us who aren't musicians, if you remember learning how to type on a keyboard, and now you just go, right? So there's some, uh, there's some front end activity that goes on um, while you start to, cultivate these kind of skills. As you're, I, I, think, I think an important guideline, and I, so I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. We're talking about a whole arc of practices in the, in the span of a couple of weeks, you know? I think you really could take a month, two, three, four, five, and like do one, month, one week's worth of stuff, and then do the next, and then do the next, and then do the next, and sort of bu build over time. So I'm going to be saying a lot of stuff. 
So a, a guideline pursuing them is to stay, in, stay engaged in a way that is uh, both productive and easeful. Where you, you have the sense, okay, I'm still growing here, but I'm not, like, I'm not busying myself. We don't, I, may none of you be busy with all the stuff. And then particularly mindfulness of thinking, because you're in the mental realm relating to mental activity, yeah, yeah, it's gonna, it could, it could very well feel busy. Um, so my suggestion would be just try a little and then go to the breathing and then try a little and go to the breathing. Does that, does that address? Cool. Thank you. Yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate the delay. I think that's a built-in function of our situation. I'm saying I'm saying our in like. Uh, I th I think it's a given for most all of us. I can venture to say anyone who would hear this recording or anyone who would be sitting in this room is um, over-engaged by content. We just have too many thoughts to think, right? We couldn't possibly think them all. Um, and so then there's this, there's this sort of cue that builds up. I have this theory that it, it sort of, it compounds every time our attention moves to a new object. And then that's there in the cue until it's able to either fade or process out. None of this is borne out by science. So this is just my functional hypothesis. But there's something about how when the mind goes idle, then everything that's in the queue gets to go, you know? Observing that, uh, observing that as a phenomenon, one of, one of the things that I've tried before is um, before sitting down to do a formal meditation, I will either uh, walk for 15 minutes doing like a really gentle, broad walking meditation, or I'll just lay on my bed and be, let my mind be idle for 15 minutes. And then that lets enough process that then I can sit in meditation and be a little bit more attentive without being taken over. It's like reserving a little bit of time and space for some of that processing you're talking about so that it doesn't have to be a, a conflict in your, in your meditation. And then if that is the nature of the meditation, like I'm, I know the theme for the night is like, see it in terms of process but there's also like, there's the wisdom of knowing when you're um, outmatched, <laughs> you know, when the thoughts are just gonna run away with us. So um, setting, setting up a context where you can give, some, give the mind some idle time can be a really good thing. Also a good, uh, one of the good reasons for me, uh, the way my day is set up to meditate in the morning because there's less of a cue that's already built up. Yeah, that's some kind of answer. Yeah, sure, sure. Yes. So it sounds like you're asking about whether or not to have a set time that you end or just let it fade. Yeah. Um, interesting, because what, what I'm hearing is that your meditations actually go long. They don't go short. Um, that doesn't sound bad at all. Um, um, if it's not disturbing, I'm, uh, uh, let me say, I'm coming from the place of, I like, I like data. Uh, so I may, sometimes I may set a timer that's on very soft, that may or may not, dis it, like soft enough that it won't disturb me, so that I know I've actually done what I set out to do, and then everything else is extra. Uh, I, I hear the bell, I don't have to get up. It's a, that's a little risky because it might like shift your frame of mind and then, you know. Um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think you need to change what you're up to at all. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, like a, like a, a recommended duration if, if you're, if you're do, going for that. When we meditate here, most of our periods are 35 or 40 minutes. Um, when, folk, when folks are just starting out, even 20 minutes feels like a lot. Uh, 
so my my advice to people generally is to set set a duration that's reasonable for you. If you're if you're sitting 45 minutes and an hour is comfortable, and you have the time, I'd say do the hour. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's not a. I don't think there's a long end. Actually, I've been in. I've been in. Um, I, uh, meditation retreats where the, the the sits were around that length of time and I was reporting on my experience and the, the teacher asked, can you go ahead and sit longer? So um, there's good precedent yeah, for, for doing a good long sit. Sure. Yes. Uh, hey, thanks for, thanks for this yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, it sounds, sounds like you've done, done some practice in the Goenka tradition. So, yeah, I love Goenka. I, yeah, I sort of grew up in that tradition. Um, and there's this, for, the, for those who haven't sat a Goenka retreat, there's, um, there's this approach that happens on day six, day six out of ten, where you, tra- you transition to doing the three-hour-long sittings you do with a group every day, you don't move. Not a muscle, not an inch, you know? You sit down and you do not move for an hour. It's awesome. <laughs> Seriously, it, it does profound things to concentration and mindfulness, and I, I think it's a powerful practice. Um, and Goenka, if, you, if, um, if I'm remembering cor- him correctly, he says that in daily life practice, um, don't, you don't have to hold that standard. When you're done the 10-day 10 10 day courses and you get to day six and you've got all of that concentration and mindfulness built up, then you can go and do aditan sittings, uh, these sittings of strong determination. Um, if it, I would say if it continues to be avail- available for you in daily life, go for it. My experience was between those 10-day courses, it, could, it lasted for a while, and then my body held too much stress, and it was just like, it was really hard. It was really, really hard, so I, I didn't keep it up. Um, and then, of course, there's dealing with the injuries that people have, you know, practicing with the bodies that they have, and an hour-long sitting might do, do tough things. Anyway, comments about Goenka, which I'll, I'll, I would like to do at some length when I get the opportunity, because I love his practice so much. Um, and then in terms of, in terms of what we're, I mean, here we're mostly, we're largely introducing a daily life practice that leads into something like Sashin, something like retreat. And my encouragement is, uh, one, to take care of your body, take care of our bodies. And then when it becomes available, if you know you're not hurting yourself, if a strong sensation comes and you know that you're not hurting yourself, see if you can stay there with it for some, some little length of time. See what it does to the body, what it does to the breathing, what it does to the mind, because there's so much to learn right there in terms of how we're influenced by unpleasant, unpleasant sensation. Um, but yeah, not to, not to do that if you think you're harming yourself or hurting yourself. It's good to... Good to do that with supervision <laughs> if, you're, uh, if you're not totally sure. Um, I don't know if that exactly answered your question, but it, it's in the territory. Do you want to try asking it a different way? Or? I guess I was just, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. No, thanks for, thanks for bringing that in. I think, um, yeah, they have those characteristics, don't they? I imagine that rings some bells for more than a few of us. Well, seeing the time, let me make just a comment. So we're edging our way sort of to the big event of Shikantaza next week, you know? We've been very gradual and I hope, I hope that that's been fruitful, the sort of gradual approach, so that we can get familiar with these different aspects of our experience. 
premise of this whole thing being, if we spend some time with the breathing, some time with the body, emotions, and thinking, then when we enter into this radical space of allowing and just not doing anything, then we're not disturbed by what arises quite as much because we've spent some wise time. And we have the confidence knowing that we have this bag of tools. More on that next week, but um, we're, moving, we're moving into some pretty interesting territory next week of radical not doing anything. Makes me a little scared. <laughs> um, yeah. Really appreciative for the engagement. The, uh, the plan versus what happened tonight, there was a, there was a wobble. And I like m much more what we did than what I had planned. So thank you for being here and being part of this conversation. Um, it, has a, it has, to me, this like very traditional vibe of um, this big group of people who are earnestly trying to practice meditation and coming together to talk about it. That is amazing. I don't think the goodness of that should be lost uh, if, we, if we lose anything tonight. But um, I think that's a Valentine's Day well spent. <laughs> so maybe there's time for announcements. It looks like Mireya is moving. <laughs>